the war began. And in weather today in Washington, D.C., it is 42 degrees and cloudy. For WPFW News in Washington and WBAI in New York, I'm Sue Goodwin. Good afternoon. This is the Shai Rana Show with your host Zain Alameen. This is a show that focuses on Arab culture and politics, and it airs every Wednesday for one hour at WPFWFM.org and WBAIFM. Hello, I'm really honoured actually to have today's guest to discuss the ICJ ruling and what it means, its significance, what happens next, and I guess the broader context, what does this mean in terms of the world order and the level of impunity that Israel has been granted since its foundation back in 1948. Um, Muin Rabani is a, someone I've been following on social media for a while, does these brilliant, very incisive threads um, about the crisis, which I found extremely educational. He's a researcher, analyst, commentator. He's the co-editor of uh, Janliya. Is that right? Am I pronouncing it correct? Right. Ish. You winced a bit there, I saw. So that was an, an ish pronunciation. No, no, I was right on. Um, host the Connections podcast, edits his quick thoughts feature, managing editor and associate editor of the journal Peace Building and Development. Lots of hats, essentially. Uh, contributing editor of Middle East Report. Um, and... Uh, he's previously served as principal pol pol political affairs officer and uh, with the office for the UN special envoy to Syria. I mean, just lots of huge expertise. So we're very glad to have you. Um, well, with you first, well it's, it's a big honor to have you. And uh, as I've said, I, I, I really hope after this, people follow you on social media and, and they will see, soon see quickly what, what I mean. Thank you. In terms of the ICJ ruling then, I mean, it's, it's interesting today, um, the Biden administration engaging, in, I would just say, willful, well, I mean, it's, it is misinformation. And so a spokesperson saying, well, Israel wasn't found guilty of genocide by the ICJ. Just, so you would I'm just interested in that context, the significance of the ICJ ruling, given the yes. misinformation being peddled. Well, first of all, I'm, I'm not sure that um, we could count these US statements as misinformation. They correctly stated um, that the International Court of Justice has not found Israel uh, guilty of genocide. What they left out is that the ICJ has not yet ruled on um, whether Israel has or has not committed genocide. So it's kind of, you know, saying um, that someone on trial for murder uh, has not been found guilty on the first day of the trial. Um, more generally, I think what happened yesterday in The Hague at the International Court of Justice is of massive and historic significance. Many people looked at this issue um, through the narrow lens, if you will, about whether or not the International Court of Justice is going to order an immediate ceasefire. That's not what this case was about. 
And I think we shouldn't confuse the ICJ with the UN Security Council, which is a kind of body that usually takes these kinds of um, decisions. The ICJ is a court. The ICJ issues legal rulings that have profound... Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, this is Zain Alameen with the Shai Nana Show. I uh, uh, had a, a bit of a difficulty technically here with the song, but I wanted to introduce the segment that you're listening to now, and then we can continue the segment. Uh, but this is a segment that was conducted by Owens Jones, um, uh, and uh, 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 it was conducted with, more importantly, with Moin Rabani, Who's uh, uh, who's been amazing in terms of his analysis, especially on recently on the International Court of Justice, and uh, this is a conversation he had where uh, Moin Rabani explains what is the significance of that and why was it uh, a, a really a defeat for Israel and how we can use it because uh, it's not something where uh, they make a judgment and then. Uh, the the defendant um, has to basically comply. This is a situation where it's uh, more complicated than that. The real ruling will come in a few years, but what's ruled now is that uh, uh, the the court determined that Israel is plausibly committing genocide. This is something that can be used by us in institutions that we work for or uh, any kind of organization that we want to demand that they divest, for example, from Israel, because then they are plausibly uh, complicit in, in genocide. So uh, uh, this is pr probably the best uh, kind of dissection of the ICJ ruling that I've heard. So we'll continue to listen to that. political um, significance or can have um, uh, that significance. It did it in the case of Namibia. Um, it did it in the case of Western Sahara. It did it um, in the case of Nagorno-Karabakh uh, in uh, between Armenia and Azerbaijan uh, last year, an ongoing case. Um, and it did it in 2004 with respect to um, uh, Israel's apartheid wall in the West Bank. The real issue here is that South Africa has accused Israel of perpetrating genocide. And at this stage of the proceedings, the ICJ was making one decision and one decision alone. And that is whether or not South Africa presented a plausible case that Israel is engaging in genocide. In other words, whether this case should be thrown out and ended or whether South Africa's arguments were sufficiently compelling and Israel's rebuttals and denials sufficiently unconvincing that the case could move forward. And by an overwhelming majority, the judges of the ICJ ruled that South Africa had indeed um, uh, put forward a plausible case and we're now going to have the equivalent of a full trial, something that can last uh, many years. This, in my view, is history with a capital H. It really changes everything because um, it's not just that a state is being accused of genocide. It is that Israel is being accused of genocide. Now, Israel presents itself um, as the Jewish state. Um, it has, since its establishment, enveloped itself in a cloak of impunity, in large part, um, in the context of, uh, of the Nazi Holocaust against uh, the Jews of Europe, and has used that history as a shield to insulate itself um, from accusations of criminal wrongdoing vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinian people. In a sense, that all ended yesterday. I think from this moment forward in the public consciousness, Israel will be seen not just in the context of compensation for the Holocaust or reparations for the Holocaust, which is how Israel likes to be seen and has presented itself, but as a state that will forever be associated with perpetrating um, uh, genocide. And, and given that international public opinion has for Israel from its very inception been an asset of strategic 
significance. It's a huge, very big deal. I'd, I'd like just to say a few words about um, uh, the absence of a ceasefire order as well. Of course, South Africa did request the court um, to order a ceasefire and the court didn't. Of course, it would have been um, icing on the cake if the court had done so. But I think if we look at the relevant precedents um, of this court, the genocide cases in Bosnia in the 1990s and Myanmar um, in 2019, in those cases, the court also didn't um, issue a ceasefire order. Perhaps more to the point, South Africa didn't ask the court to issue a judgment on the legality of um, Israeli military operations in the Gaza Strip. So one could argue there was no reason for the judges to wade into this hornet's nest and offer an opinion on a conflict that they were not asked um, uh, to judge. And then many people say, yes, but the court did issue a ceasefire order in the case of uh, Ukraine versus Russia last year. That's true, but that was a very different case. Ukraine was not accusing Russia of genocide. Ukraine was defending itself against um, what it informed the court were false Russian accusations of genocide leveled against Ukraine and being used by Russia as a justification for the Russian um, military operations in Ukraine. And it was on that very different basis that the court ordered a ceasefire in Ukraine. I mean, that's a critical point, isn't it? Because in that particular case, the, the, the court was saying the pretext given for this invasion, which is that Ukraine is committing genocide in the Donbass, is false. And therefore, the basis for military operations is false. And therefore, they must, they yes. must go ahead. So that, that's yeah. what's caused confusion. I mean, yes. I suppose and, the point is... If I may, I mean, uh, some people have suggested that, that South Africa could have perhaps should have put forward a similar argument here in the sense that Israeli officials and spokespeople since October 7th, the Hamas attacks in Israel, have repeatedly um, uh, labeled these attacks as acts of genocide and have used that to mobilize uh, support and justification for their genocidal onslaught on the Gaza Strip. Um, perhaps um, they could have, but my sense is that the South African legal team wanted to focus uh, very directly and exclusively on their main accusation and didn't want to be seen to be going on a fishing expedition and throwing in every strand of uh, spaghetti uh, available at the wall to see what sticks. I mean, in, in terms of the provisional orders, it's, mm -hmm. I mean, the key point I suppose many would make is what the court has ordered Israel to do isn't compatible with the military operations, if we're caught, I mean, it's a euphemistic term for what Israel is doing, yes. but it's, it's, they're not compatible, are they? Yes, and, and that's by implication because the court did not directly and explicitly order Israel to halt its uh, military operations. It did order it not to take any actions um, that, that violate the various provisions of, of the Genocide Convention to ensure uh, sufficient delivery of humanitarian aid and so on. And I'm, I'm not trying to belittle any of these um, issues. They are, of course, crucially important, particularly to those in the Gaza Strip directly affected. But I think it's important to bear in mind the International Court of Justice has no power to enforce its orders and rulings. So, and, and the only way their rulings can be enforced is if the UN Security Council, which of course has the United States as a veto-wielding permanent member, issues such a resolution. And in this case, that's simply not going to happen. So I think the focus on what the court did and did not order, was it this measure or was it that measure, kind of misses um, uh, the key issue, which is a more political, moral, uh, legal issue, which is a crucial point about whether the world Supreme Court has found that there is a plausible case to be made that Israel is engaging in genocide. Because bear in mind, as, as we were discussing earlier, at this stage, the court is not offering a judgment on whether Israel is or is not, in fact, committing genocide, but whether there should be a full and proper hearing on this issue.
and that they overwhelmingly decided that this should indeed be the case is, I think, of historic significance. One of the things I I was thinking over when the the judge, on behalf obviously of the the court, was uh, the, sorry the president of the ICJ, uh, the, the the judge went through the genocidal statements made by Israeli politicians and leaders. And I felt at that point, actually, that this was such a damning indictment for the Western media, which I'm part of, because all the way from the very beginning, there has been no subtlety. I mean, I, I interviewed Razi Gal, the Israeli-American professor, associate professor of genocide and Holocaust studies. He said it's actually very rare for intent to be so crudely put because often what happens is for example genocides happen you get official denials they might even claim humanitarian intentions um and you, you basically you know have to maybe go there's some classified documents somewhere you might be able to get hold of it for a future war crimes judgment they just said it and one example was um Yom Galant, the israeli defense minister on the eve of the art of the, of the ground invasion saying i've released all the restraints from soldiers now the reason i bring this up is the western media coverage has been either just cheering on israel but generally presentments by israeli leaders and officials have not shaped the coverage of this at all they've in fact largely been ignored i, I googled that yov galan statement because you keep getting idf soldiers committing war crimes and po posting them on TikTok. And people are like, what's happened? Is discipline broken down? Without note, noting that you, the defence minister he'd removed all restrictions on soldiers. So I'm just interested in that. You know, the court spoke and delivered. I thought that was very powerful. And that's a damning indictment of how this had been covered and, and shaped by media coverage. Well, I, I think that's exactly right. And I think you raise an absolutely crucial point. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not either a scholar of um, uh, genocide nor a specialist in international law, um, but those who are consistently point out that what sets genocide apart from other um, war crimes and uh, crimes against humanity is the element of intent. In other words, it's you are um, uh, found innocent or guilty, not only on the basis of what you've actually done, because that's insufficient, you also have to prove why it was done. In, in this case, as the South African uh, legal team in The Hague brilliantly demonstrated, there is just an avalanche of, of statements uh, that demonstrate intent. And just as importantly, they were able to draw a real connection between the statements of leaders, of decision makers, of opinion formers, and so on, on the one hand, and the actions of Israel's soldiers um, uh, in the field on the other. And why is this so important? Well, I'm sure you're familiar with um, the tired refrain of Holocaust deniers who always say, well, you know, if there was a Holocaust in Europe, where's a memo Hitler wrote to Himmler? Um, telling him explicitly um, uh, to exterminate um, uh, the Jews of Europe. Oh, there isn't such a memo? Well, then there wasn't a Holocaust. You know, these kinds of silly and sordid arguments, because as you point out, um, uh, usually, you know, people who engage in these kinds of crimes try to make an effort to cover their tracks, and the crime is th then has to be proven on the basis of inferring intent from the actual actions of the perpetrator. Here, we have what, what many um, uh, genocide scholars and international legal specialists have pointed out, is, is a very unusual, if not unique case, in the sense that intent has been broadcast loudly and clearly um, uh, from the very get-go. And, and, as, and as you point out, in, in much of the mainstream Western media, um, the approach has been to kind of ignore much of that, um, to look at the Israeli military um, by, by one that is governed by discipline, um, by uh, um, regulations, by international law, you know, this old tired canard of uh, the most moral army in the world that fights mm -hmm. according to purity of arms. And then to look at 
um, the kinds of horrors and atrocities we've been, we've been seeing in the Gaza Strip as um, a few rotten apples or as a breakdown of, um, of military order and discipline and so on, rather than as the implementation of an official policy. What do you think about the near unanimity um, given, I mean, the Ugandan judge, I think lots of people were slightly perturbed by her, but by the fact she even voted against, for example, providing humanitarian aid, but she said basically she just mm. didn't think the court had any authority whatsoever um, on such a conflict. But the fact before this, a lot of people thought, well, the US judge will clearly fight side of Israel. She was part of the US State Department. She's actually part of the yeah. US legal establishment. She was a People thought realpolitik would intrude. But the fact that you had, I mean, even the Israeli ad hoc judge voted on, for example, impunity. What do you, yes. what do you make of that? That is so overwhelming. Well, I think, you know, ultimately when people look back on, 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 on this uh, ruling, this order from yesterday, they're going to look at the result and, and um, you know, which judge voted how and which, mm -hmm. and what the majority was is I think going to probably disappear into the history books um, fairly soon. But nevertheless, I, I do think it's an important issue. Um, first of all, as you, uh, as you mentioned, um, the majority was overwhelming. All the votes yep. were either 16 to one or 16 to two. Secondly, personally, I think it's significant that the president of the ICJ yesterday was an American, and not only an American, um, uh, but an American um, uh, judge who made her career as a lawyer in the American government, who held senior positions. And the State Department were kind of Israeli impunity is baked into the um, uh, professional code, if you will. You know, of, of course, ICJ um, judges, they're nominated by their governments, but, but they don't serve as government officials. In other words, they don't take instructions um, uh, from their capitals the way an ambassador, for example, uh, might. Um, but nevertheless, I think to have this verdict delivered in American English by an American judge um, yeah. uh, with her professional background is, is not something um, uh, I would... Uh, I would underestimate. Secondly, regarding the um, uh, Ugandan judge, I, I read her dissenting opinion and, and several things stood out. Um, uh, first of all, she said that this is a um, political and historical dispute between Israel and the Palestinian people that should not be resolved in a court of law, but, she, but should be resolved through um, negotiations or through a political settlement. Well, whatever one may think about the prospects of um, resolving um, this through a political settlement, the fact of the matter is that the reason this case um, came to the ICJ is for a very specific legal reason, namely um, a document that is the 1948 Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. So there's, this is very clearly a legal dispute. Secondly, um, the dispute before the ICJ was not between Israel and the Palestinians. It was between South Africa and Israel, and it was bought on the basis of a specific legal dispute arising from the fact that both of these states are signatories to that convention. Um, but the, um, the dissenting opinion that I actually found the most interesting was that of the German judge. Um, and this gets back a little to our previous discussion about intent. If you read his, um, if you read his own opinion, he makes clear um, that he wasn't overwhelmingly impressed by the case presented by South Africa, and that under different circumstances, he may have voted um, uh, differently. But then he concludes by saying that what made, made it impossible for me to do anything other than vote for the court's um, provisional measures is the question of intent and the repeated statements made by Israeli leaders demonstrating that intent. And that in effect tied his hands and left him with no choice but to do something he was otherwise disinclined um, uh, to do. As far as the, um, as far as the Israeli um, ad hoc judge uh, is concerned, and here I should point out the reason that he is um, 
sitting on this court in a in a um, ad hoc capacity is because states that have cases um, uh, before the court that do not already have sitting judges on the court are permitted to nominate um, uh, judges to serve on the court for that specific case, at least as far as the Genocide Convention is concerned. You know, Aharon Barak is perhaps Israel's most celebrated um, uh, legal scholar and judge. He is also a very uh, notorious individual because he has been absolutely crucial to the legalization of Israel's many policies um, in the West Bank that amount to war crimes and crimes against humanity, issues such as um, uh, the, the establishment and expansion of illegal settlements, um, deportation, torture, house demolitions, and all the rest of it. And in fact, in 2004, when he was uh, president of Israel's Supreme Court, he overturned the ICJ's advisory opinion on the West Bank wall, um, in, you know, with, with the ruling that he understands the issue much better than the International Court of Justice does. And so therefore Israel is free to ignore that uh, right. opinion. Oh, I'm curious, I don't know if the ICJ judges um, have dinner together, but it would have been very interesting to be a fly on the wall those events yeah and, and and see what the what these people uh, discussed and you know you read his dissenting opinion and the first part of it is um he recounts his um uh his own uh, personal history and i believe it was latvia or lithuania um uh during the nazi holocaust and how he managed uh, to to survive well this may be um moving testimony but it is absolutely irrelevant because this case is, is is not about the Nazis, it's about the state of Israel. And one, one other thing that distinguishes the crime of genocide is that there can be absolutely no contextual or historical or mm -hmm. circumstantial justification. It's not like the taking of a human life where you can justify it by saying you acted in self-defense against an imminent threat of, um, uh, of being killed yourself. If you're guilty of genocide, there is no excuse or justification for it, full stop. And, and you know, Aharon Barak knows this, but he nevertheless um, did that and then entered into another long song and dance, um, basically trying to demonstrate um, once again, this old canard of Israel being the most moral army in the world, every soldier, carries um, uh, by his orders international law texts in their backpack, you know, along with their sniper rifles and, and, and high explosives and all the rest of it, I presume. So, it, you know, it, it makes for rather amusing uh, reading for those who live in the 21st century. Yeah, that's such a key point. There's, I mean, that's South Africa's case, wasn't there? There was never any basis or justification or provocation for genocide. And there's lots of cases throughout history where I mean, in Rwanda in 1990, the Rwandan uh, Popular Front invaded, committed terrible atrocities. That didn't justify, clearly, the Rwandan genocide. Similarly, Bosnian Serb civilians, there were huge atrocities committed against Bosnian Serb civilians. That doesn't justify the crime of genocide. Um, in terms of what's happened now, it's striking that the uh, Shin Bet, Israel's intelligence agency, has suddenly, just at this particular opportune moment, said they found evidence of a few members of the UNRWA, that's the United Nations Agency, for those who don't know, which is in charge of Palestinian, uh, looking after Palestinian refugees, founded in the aftermath of, of the Nakba, I think 1949 it was founded. Um, and they're claiming, you know, and now Britain and the US are cutting off uh, funding. Um, so just, I mean, that's where the media coverage is now focusing. It's not about the ICJ, the United Nations, complicity, um, and it's, 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 it's not Israel, it's therefore Israel's critics are on the defensive. That's how it's been made to be spun. Yes. What do you make of the significance of this, of the nature of the attack, and actually what it means because UNRWA is, is it saves lives. I mean, without UNRWA and the current catastrophe. What, so what do you make of all of this? Well, there's there's several strands to this story. Um, one of them is the longstanding and ongoing um, Israeli attack against UNRWA. Um, and its um, constant campaign to delegitimize uh, UNRWA and to basically seek to prevent what is a United Nations humanitarian agency as somehow being a political agent 
operating um, on, on behalf uh, of the Palestinians. And, and this is a campaign that has also been, um, to a very large extent, endorsed by Israel's Western sponsors in the United States and, and, and uh, in Europe. You know, there's UNRWA is constantly under investigation, usually for the same thing, you know, school textbooks and, and all these other silly things. And every time nothing comes up, well, that's because we need another investigation uh, ad infinitum. So that's one element of the background. The other element of the background is the issue we've been discussing, the International Court of Justice um, uh, provisional ruling um, of, uh, of yesterday or interim ruling. And, and um, my understanding is that Israel timed the release of a statement accusing, I believe, 12 UNRWA staff of having been directly and personally involved in the Palestinian attacks on Israel of October 7th, timed the release to coincide with the ICJ um, uh, session yesterday um, in an effort to uh, divert um, uh, attention from it. Um, UNRWA got wind of this and thought that it would, and the UNRWA leadership seems to have believed that the best way to engage in damage control would be to put out a very strong statement um, uh, immediately firing these accused individuals, um, uh, repeating um, on multiple, multiple times in that statement how um, uh, fiercely opposed UNRWA is uh, to terrorism um, and announcing a full investigation by UN's internal investigative agency. The problem is that UNRWA, UNRWA I think, made several missteps. The way that they responded to these accusations can be read as somehow validating them. That's mm -hmm. number one. Secondly, I think UNRWA's motivation was to demonstrate to um, its uh, key funders in the West that it is taking these accusations very seriously. Whereas what in fact happened is that um, first the United States and today the United Kingdom um, of course, embrace the Israeli accusations like they embrace um, Israeli propaganda um, whenever that's the case. And then I think also took UNRWA's initial admission of guilt, um, as you will, or at least considered it as such, to suspend their funding to the agency. So I think um, it was quite an own goal uh, by the UNRWA leadership that could have easily been avoided. Um, you know, UNRWA could have pointed out very easily um, that they take these accusations very seriously, that they're engaging in a full and comprehensive um, independent investigation of these accusations, um, that the individuals named are suspended perhaps um, uh, until uh, the conclusion of proceedings. But, you know, the way they were um, uh, summarily fired and so on, I think doesn't look good at all. Um, and of course, these individuals have the right to due process. And what UNRWA could have then done is also point out that more UNRWA, that more UN staff have been killed in the Gaza Strip since October 7th than in any other conflict during the history um, of the UN. And perhaps pointed out um, that all of these um, uh, staff who have been killed since October 7th are in fact UNRWA staff. But I think there's an issue here. You know, um, UNRWA staff are overwhelmingly Palestinians, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, teachers, uh, doctors, and so on. And, and I guess in the, you know, in the UN's um, uh, ranking of, of value of employees, um, these people perhaps um, count for a little less um, than if you're talking about uh, uh, Europeans or, or North Americans uh, or others. And UNRWA could have also, perhaps it would have been difficult for it to point out directly, but apparently these Israeli accusations are based on um, uh, confessions extracted under interrogation in Israeli prisons. Well, there have been so many previous cases where the Israelis, you know, um, with American and, and European backing have made these types of uh, allegations. 
that have then been demonstrated to have been completely unfounded war propaganda. And UNRWA could have found a way um, to make sure that journalists covering this story are also aware of that. And secondly, UNRWA, or finally, UNRWA could have also pointed out how many employees it has. Um, uh, you know, this isn't um, 12 out of 20 employees who are being accused uh, by Israel. This is 12 out of many, many thousands. So I think UNRWA spectacularly uh, mishandled uh, this issue. And, and as far as the accusations themselves are concerned, you know, torture is legitimate in the state of Israel. These um, uh, people are being accused on the basis, apparently, of um, confessions extracted under interrogation um, uh, in Israeli prisons. That alone, I think, should raise question marks pending further investigation. Such a key, about 13,000 Palestinian UNRWA staffers uh, working yeah. in Gaza. Um, so we're talking about a handful. I mean, be like the, the government suddenly suspending funding for the National Health Service because some of its employees have been engaged in criminal activity. Um, I mean, I was going to say, I mean, there's not even a parallel there because we're not even talking about criminal activity on the job here. I mean, it's not that surprising if, if there's a, a number of Palestinians involved in that particular attack that some... Well, exactly. And if, if I can interrupt you, I mean, you know, UNRWA, like um, other UN and, and aid agencies, of course, um, does have an obligation um, uh, for uh, neutrality. And, and needless to say, its staff um, uh, can't be uh, involved in um, armed activities on behalf of uh, resistance uh, movements. But, you know, as you point out, even if you assume um, that these accusations are um, uh, legitimate and, and are going to be substantiated, Okay, you know, how many um, uh, UK civil servants have been guilty of domestic abuse, perhaps even guilty of murder? As you say, that doesn't impugn the apparatus um, uh, as a whole. And, and the other thing I, I would like to add is that as a result of what happened yesterday, um, the identification or the, continu the continuum between the policies of the Donald Trump administration towards the Palestinians and of the Biden administration is now complete. It has now become indistinguishable because as you may remember, during the Trump administration, um, the United States um, recognized uh, the illegal Israeli annexation of, uh, of East Jerusalem. It recognized um, Jerusalem as the capital of Israel in violation of international law, including UN Security Council resolutions that the United States had not opposed. In, in violation of that of a different UN Security Council resolution, it relocated its embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. It shut down um, uh, both the uh, U.S. consulate in East Jerusalem, which served primarily Palestinians, and ordered the closure of the PLO mission in the United States in Washington D.C. Um, recognized Israel's annexation of the um, occupied and illegally annexed. Syrian Golan Heights, and it launched a furious campaign against Palestinian refugees, um, the focus of which was to seek to defund and abolish UNRWA. When Biden came into um, uh, office, they left all those policies and decisions in place. The only significant change was that um, Biden restored U.S. funding to UNRWA. That is now suspended again. So Trump and Biden policies towards the Palestinians have now become literally indistinguishable. I think it's such a key point as well, the, the continuity, just in terms of how Biden and the like have portrayed themselves as custodians of this liberal international order uh, compared to Donald Trump. But they're actually now undermining international institutions, including the United Nations itself, in a way that's not actually distinguishable with... Yes. Uh, the policies of Trump. But just finally, just to circle back to where we began, really, and it's that point you made about history with a capital H. Um, and I just want, in terms of taking that long view, I mean, I keep mentioning, for example, Rad Sigal, who, who uh, the, the Israeli-American um, Associate Professor of Genocide and Holocaust Studies, he, he made the exact point about you, that you made about how Israel was granted this impunity um, after World War II. And I'm just wondering, in terms of 
you know, lots of things are happening because I think if you look at the US, younger generations are far more pro-Palestinian than they've ever been. There's a, a huge shift currently taking place there. And actually, if you see Biden's polling numbers amongst younger Americans, they're catastrophic and Palestine has definitely fed into that. Um, so you've got in the, in the, the you know, the, uh, the custodian of his, the, the, the protector of Israel, its own electorate is shifting away from Israel. We've seen here the global south basically stage a revolt and force the top court on earth to strip away Israeli impunity. I mean, do you think generally, actually, if you were looking at the long term, if you were at the top of the Israeli state, you actually might be a bit worried about where things are heading? I'd, I'd be very worried. Um, and, and for a number of reasons. One is the issues that we've been discussing today, that Israel is now um, continues to be associated with genocide, as it always has been since the moment of its establishment. Um, I won't get into the details, but I think um, that doesn't really apply because, you know, Zionism emerged in the late 19th century, decades uh, before the Nazis um, came to power. But anyway, so Israel has since its inception, particularly in, in, in the Western mind, been associated with genocide, of course, as a victim of genocide. Um, that has now completely um, uh, changed. Um, Israel is now primarily associated in the public consciousness as a perpetrator um, mm -hmm. rather than as a victim of, of genocide. And, and again, given um, the strategic significance of public support um, uh, for Israel, you know, it's South Africa basically couldn't care less um, what anyone uh, thought about it. Um, uh, Russia hasn't been seeking um, widespread public uh, uh, support for its actions in Ukraine and so on. So this is a huge deal. Um, secondly, if we look specifically at the United States, in my view, Israel's most important um, uh, strategic asset over um, uh, the decades has, has not been so much, you know, the weapons and vetoes and all, all the other things um, that Washington has been delivering to Israel, but the solid bipartisan U.S. political support that make mm -hmm. this uh, possible. Um, uh, and that is now also beginning to fray. It's beginning mm -hmm. to fray in part because of um, the issues um, uh, that you mentioned, you know, older generations, I think, were, were um, more prone to look at Israel, see a Jewish state and think Nazis. Um, younger generations, I think, are more prone to uh, look at Israel and see uh, apartheid and now um, uh, genocide as well. But I think the key issue here is that Israel has had it too good for too long to the extent that it didn't really have to try very hard anymore and began making, I think, some very significant strategic mistakes. For example, the way Netanyahu inserted himself into the U.S. domestic debate about the Iranian nuclear agreement mm -hmm. in 2015 and actually went there as a tool of the Republican Party um, to address uh, the U.S. Congress to um, oppose the nuclear agreement, which was, of course, a pet project of the Obama administration. The way that um, uh, Israel has sought to make itself a partisan issue in the United States as kind of, um, uh, you know, a key project of the evangelical um, uh, Christian movement, of the MAGA types, of, of right-wing Republicans, uh, and so on. And you see this in Europe as well, where Israel is forming ever closer alliances with far-right um, uh, radicals mm -hmm. at the expense of the support it used to, much more broad support it used to, enjoy among Christian democratic and social democratic and, and, and liberal and conservative elites. So that I think, you know, it's going to take time uh, to play out and to be translated into different policies. But this is, I think, of absolutely crucial uh, uh, significance that's not going to end well for Israel. Raymond, it's been such an honor. Um, as Honors on mine. Uh, hugely incisive and in-depth look at such a range of issues and it's been very educational for me and I, I think it will be extremely educational for everyone who has watched or listened so do make sure you follow I'll 
Mirin Rabani, I'll, I'll, I'll put his social media info in the video description. Uh, do like this video and subscribe and share the video. Um, make sure everyone hears this, his wisdom as much as possible. But Mirin, it's been a big honor. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Owen. It was a real pleasure being on your program. Uh, what we just heard is uh, Owen Jones, who's a reporter usually for The Guardian, and uh, he was interviewing Moin Rabani, uh, who has been really uh, giving one of the most uh, nuanced uh, and best explanations of uh, what the ICJ uh, ruling means and what's its implications on the region and on, on Israel. And obviously we have a situation where uh, 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 right now uh, we have, it's it's not a situation where the ruling uh, has caused, as I mentioned, uh, uh, has, there is no specific ruling for uh, to stop uh, uh, for ceasefire, but the ruling did come out to say again, that there that Israel is plausibly committing genocide and it's uh, it was really amazing that how many of the judges agreed with that uh, 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 so that's that's uh, uh, what we just heard. I just wanted to give you uh, a rundown of the news now, um, which I usually do at the top of the hour, but we had some technical difficulties but I wanted to give you some news about what's happening uh, now, just updates on what's happening, obviously, in Palestine uh, right now. First of all, you know, we just uh, heard this analysis on the ICJ ruling, and of course, Western nations, and with the taking the lead of Israel, uh, wanted to uh, uh, basically uh, delegitimize the UN, which the ICJ court is the highest court in the UN. And so what they did is they took the story that uh, from Israel, which uh, Israel put out immediately that uh, 12 of the UNRWA, you know, uh, uh, employees out of tens of thousands are actually have ties with Hamas. Of course, that was, as, as we just heard, uh, done under coercion, under uh, threat of violence, these kind of confessions that have happened. And of course, they the Western nations, uh, which have been absolutely brutal in their approach, absolutely racist, all these white supremacist nations like the United States, United Kingdom, um, that uh, uh, specifically, uh, I should say, England um, uh, and other nations uh, um, that actually pulled their uh, support uh, for uh, UNRWA, um, which uh, is uh, preposterous, uh, since UNRWA had even taken the steps, maybe UNRWA should not have taken any steps to, because we know that everything, every accusation that Israel had uh, put out is actually a confession. Um, uh, and so the the uh, they shouldn't have really complied, uh, maybe to give an excuse for uh, these countries to pull out their um, support, their financial support to UNRWA uh, uh, at this crucial moment where UNRWA is feeding people in Gaza that are starving, or and also they're involved in the education system and other things. And understand that UNRWA employs. Uh, mostly Palestinian uh, there, and inevitably because uh, there's no recognition that there's a separation between, that there's no separation between Hamas and, uh, and the people uh, of Palestine. They are Palestinians. Uh, uh, that that's, uh, 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 that that's at the heart of the problem is that they're, uh, it's it's not separated. So when we say, uh, you know, uh, what happened is the Wall Street Journal published an article that, believe it or not, uh, was uh, uh, written the lead uh, uh, writer 
for that article in the Wall Street Journal that said that 10% of uh, of uh, uh, employees of UNRWA actually have connections with Hamas. Basically, the article that caused this these countries to withdraw their money was written by actually an ex-IDF soldier, an ex-Israeli soldier. Um, uh, so th this woman that's uh, uh, parading as a journalist and as an unbiased journalist is actually served in the Israeli army that wrote this thing about Arwa in the Wall Street Journal. And that's what uh, uh, these countries reacted to. Uh, Another uh, issue, of course, the heat is rising up in the region in the sense that, you know, uh, there were three uh, servicemen and women that were killed in uh, Syria through these resistance uh, militias that uh, have been attacking U.S. interests uh, uh, in in uh, uh, Syria and in, in Iraq uh, yeah, you know, there's uh, still uh, uh, some presence there, uh, despite the fact that Iraq had had told the U.S. to to get out, uh, to take their military out. Um, so, since these were attacked by these militias, and since the United States is insisting that's done with, somehow with the uh, cooperation of Iran. Uh, they they now Biden is saying I don't want a wider war but I will I will respond to Iran with this and Iran said we don't want a wider war but uh, we will uh, you know if if you want to bring it bring it we will have uh, uh, we will also respond to it uh, they you know and they also said uh, we had no uh, no, uh, we didn't really uh, have any idea about these operations. These operations are independent of us. Uh, um, so uh, another uh, piece of news is that now we have thousands of preachers across the nation, uh, uh, among them hundreds of preachers that are... Uh, that uh, uh, African-American preachers across the nation that have been asking uh, Biden to, to call for a ceasefire and uh, uh, some of the preachers saying they're oppressed over there, we're oppressed over here, uh, we should be in solidarity with the Palestinians. But of course, Biden is not listening and in fact escalating things. Uh, Biden is, by the way, according to staffers, uh, uh, that have been talking with reporters in private, the, you know, the, he is completely isolated. Like, even in his own, you know, the higher-ups in his own administration are trying to talk some sanity into him. And every time he starts babbling about something from the past, we basically, we have this insane psychopath, this racist who hates Arabs, who hates Muslims, who hates Arabs of all religion, who uh, who doesn't care about the massacre of Arabs, uh, uh, continuing this war with the whole administration not being able to stop them. This really questions the, the state of our democracy in the United States more than any insurrection. The, you know, the January 6th, uh, 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 what happened in January 6th is a drop in the ocean of this kind of uh, 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 attack on democracy. There is no democracy. Our representatives are not listening to us uh, on either side of the aisle, and the president is not even listening to his own people. Uh, and uh, uh, and it's, in essence, this is what we, when we criticize third world dictatorships, this is what's happening basically in the United States. And we have these dinosaurs like Pelosi, who Nancy Pelosi, who just accused uh, protesters that are calling for a ceasefire of having ties with Russia. And then later when she was confronted uh, in front of her house, she told the protesters to go back to China. So she's coming up with all these conspiracy theories that mainstream media has been running for years about Russian intervention in our, in our elections, which uh, amounted to nothing. 
uh, that now she's accusing protest pro-Palestinian uh, activists with uh, to have uh, to be colluding with China, which is uh, racist against both uh, Palestinians, racist against the the uh, uh, American Jews that are protesting her, and it's racist against the Chinese themselves. Um, uh, 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 so we have two dinosaurs, Nancy Pelosi and Biden, that are uh, basically coming up with this uh, uh, with this baloney. Uh, so that's the state we're in. Uh, this is where we'll end. We'll uh, we'll see you next week uh, on Wednesday at two o'clock for the Shayunana show. WPFW in Washington and WBAI New York. I'm Chris Bangert Drowns with some brief news headlines. House Republicans voted along party lines after midnight today to move towards impeaching Alejandro Mayorkas. The GOP led House Homeland Security Committee approved two articles of impeachment against the Homeland Security Secretary. They accuse him of a, quote, willful and systemic refusal to comply with the law and a breach of public trust over his handling of the nation's southern border. House Democrats characterized the impeachment effort as a sham and said the articles lack evidence of high crimes or misdemeanors, which is the constitutional basis for impeachment. The full House could vote on the articles of impeachment as early as next week. If the House were to impeach Mayorkas, it's deeply unlikely the Democratic-controlled Senate would vote to convict him. The CEOs of Meta, TikTok, X, and other social media companies are testifying today before the Senate Judiciary Committee at a hearing titled Big Tech and the Online Child Sexual Exploitation Crisis. This comes as lawmakers, families, and child safety advocates are growing increasingly concerned that social media platforms don't do enough to protect kids online. Lawmakers in favor of enacting legislation to regulate social media argue that companies have failed to police themselves at the expense of kids. Over the past year, the Senate Judiciary Committee has approved several bills, including one that would strip social media platforms of a legal shield that protects them from lawsuits over content posted by their users. None of the proposals have yet become law. At least 150 people were killed in Gaza in the past 24 hours, and another 313 wounded. Earlier this week, Israel surged some troops back into northern Gaza, weeks after declaring operations in the north to be completed. The military said today that it targeted what it claimed was militant infrastructure in a school. The heaviest fighting is still in the southern Gaza city of Khan Yunus. Nearly 27,000 Palestinians have been killed in Gaza since Israel's offensive began in October, and nearly 2 million people have been displaced. Nearly 50% of all buildings in Gaza have been damaged or destroyed since Israel launched its war, according to satellite data analyzed by U.S. universities and seen by BBC. The sites attacked include mosques, schools, universities, and cultural sites. Corey Schur of New York University is one of the academics who worked on the Gaza damage assessment. He told the BBC, quote, We've done work over Ukraine. We've also looked at Aleppo and other cities. But the extent and the pace of damage is remarkable. I've never seen this much damage appear so quickly. End quote. A group of Israeli soldiers disguised as medical workers and civilians stormed a hospital yesterday in the occupied West Bank and killed three Palestinian militants, including one who was paralyzed. The director of the hospital told Reuters that the three men were executed, quote, in cold blood by firing bullets directly into their heads in the room where they were being treated. One man had been receiving treatment since late October for a spinal injury that paralyzed him. Various militant groups confirmed that the three men were members. The Israeli military claimed the men were hiding in the hospital and planning an imminent attack, but did not provide evidence for that claim. And President Biden said yesterday that he has decided on a U.S. response to the drone attack against a base in Jordan Sunday that killed three American soldiers and injured more than 40 others. Biden has not said what that response will entail. 
Biden did say, quote, we don't need a wider war in the region and said he did hold Iran responsible for their role in supplying weapons to militant groups. Kateb Hezbollah, the powerful Iranian-backed group in Iraq that the U.S. has blamed for Sunday's attack, announced yesterday that it is halting all attacks against U.S. forces. A Reuters report says the group faced pressure from leaders in Tehran and Baghdad to make that announcement. Weather in Washington, D.C. right now is 44 degrees with a light drizzle. In New York City, 39 degrees and overcast.